Welcome to Missing Persons Uncovered. I'm Karen Shalev-Green, and I carry out research into missing persons at the University of Portsmouth in the UK. In this podcast, we seek to understand the complexities of a global issue. Every year, hundreds of thousands of people go missing worldwide. I'm Caroline Humer, a child protection expert, and across this series, Karen and I are talking to professionals to share insights into how we can all be more aware and take action to protect vulnerable people in our communities and families from going missing. In this episode, Caroline talks to Kelly Harkins Kincaid, founder of Australia Forensics, to explore the use of forensic and scientific technology to help law enforcement in their quest to solve cold cases. The question that most of us have is really how far have we gotten with forensic technology, as well as specifically DNA, as DNA has been used in a lot of missing person cases and identifying long-term cases since the 1980s. Families can advocate for themselves by going to their law enforcement agency that's handling the case and saying, I want to submit, I want to provide. If my loved one is found, there is someone in the database who's closely related to make a match. One of the things that you focusing on, Kelly, is the cold cases. And when we're talking about cold cases, is really missing person cases that have been missing for a lengthy time. And law enforcement have conducted their usual investigations and unfortunately haven't come up with results to finding the missing persons. And so they look towards you and technology of DNA to provide new evidence, new information that could lead to where the person is or who the person is that they're looking at. Before we go into that, explain how you got into this and why DNA testing and forensics and how you got into missing persons with law enforcement. It was a roundabout way that I got into this field and I took sort of a a foray away from analyzing DNA from human remains. It feels like I've finally returned full circle to my roots. My roots are in anthropological genetics or looking at interesting questions from human history or about humans in general using DNA technology. I did this mostly in archaeological contexts, so looking at human remains from archaeology, from different parts of the world and different time periods throughout history. And so my degree is combining questions about humans in the past with Mm -hmm. DNA technology. And so it seemed like when the opportunity arose to develop a lab that was using the newest DNA technologies and applying them to forensic cases where an old cold case might be a few decades old, whereas the samples that I had been used to processing were thousands of years old, then all of a sudden it felt like, oh, this is an area where my expertise or our laboratory methods can make an impact. In the meantime, between the time where I was doing archaeological genetics and this forensics work, I started a company that used ancient DNA methods or the methods that we use to get DNA out of extremely old and poor samples, applying that to the clinical world. So clinical samples that are difficult to deal with, like biopsy samples and and the DNA sample that are found floating, the DNA that's found floating in your blood. So I took this experience in building a company and building a lab and, you know, developing that, those kinds of services. 
and products. And once I kind of had that established, the opportunity to take forensic samples and help law enforcement in their quest to solve these cold cases, it seemed like a natural a natural step to do that. How did you then get involved with the missing persons and the cold cases to establish that? I mean, that that is such a unique part of the DNA area. My co-founder, who's a professor at the University of California, Santa Cruz, had worked on a project that tried to identify a little girl from the 1800s who was found in a casket under a San Francisco house. There was this mystery about how this 1800s person, how she got under this house, what was she doing there, and who was she? The scientists who were involved, which were archaeologists and geneticists and historians, were able to piece together the history surrounding the, the area. They found out there was a cemetery. They kind of were able to narrow down ages of the coffin and said, okay, it must be between the, these few years and ages of the child within the coffin, it had to have been a few different a few different people. And so what they did is they tested a piece of this little girl's hair, and she was hermetically sealed in this coffin. So her body was kind of extraordinarily well-preserved, and she had hair. She was basically mummified. At the university, Ian was able to test a piece of the hair, and then they were able to ascertain potential relatives based on their historical research of the cemetery that had once been there, and ask the question, is this hair sample, the DNA in this hair sample from this little girl, related to any of these living descendants who we've been able to historically surmise our possible relatives. And when that paper came out in the newspaper and in the journals, that's when folks who are working in cold cases, law enforcement and nowadays genealogists, saw that article and realized if that can be done with a sample from the 1800s, then that could be done for my cases from the 1970s or 80s or 90s. But with that kind of aha moment for our lab and our kinds of methods, and the community that could use them, kind of connecting the dots and saying, this is a technology that can be used. So this started in the academic ancient DNA lab at the University of California, Santa Cruz, when the requests to process forensic samples from law enforcement became too great for the lab to handle. We mm. realized, hey, let's start a service lab that can directly help law enforcement get it out of the university lab where it never really had a natural home and build a lab specifically for this purpose. At what point does law enforcement get in touch with you? Because we say cold cases, but if a missing person has been missing for a year, would that be something that you already start helping with? Or is there a requirement on your end to say, well, it has to be a certain amount of time because too many requests, there's not enough resources to be able to do certain cases. Our only requirements are that all of the traditional methods have been exhausted and that the case has reached a dead end. And what I mean by dead end is that there are no leads to mm -hmm. finding the individual or general what cases come to us are actually unidentified remains. So at that point, it's how do we connect these remains with the living person and the family, the missing person? Not all unidentified remains were once missing persons. Sometimes we don't find out the story until the individual has been identified. And then you find out, well, maybe it was both. The family had reported the individual missing. This was a missing person. 
but it was also a homicide or unfortunate circumstances like that. For our listeners, they can't come directly to you to provide you with DNA if they have a missing person. It's more they have to go through law enforcement to be able to see what law enforcement has done before you get involved. Because I'm assuming also that doing the forensic investigations like you're doing are costly. Families can advocate for themselves by going to their law enforcement agency that's handling the case and saying, I want to submit, I want to provide. If my loved one is found, there is someone in the database who's closely related to make a match. So families can do things like that, voluntarily provide samples or advocate that law enforcement consider newer options, newer technology that's available. Within the U.S., we have CODIS, which Mm -hmm. is very well known as sort of the DNA database. Is that where families who volunteer their DNA stays there so that people can match if need to be? That's right. These are considered family reference samples when, when DNA is passed down from mother and father to child. So it's the, the closer the relative, either a, a parent or a child or a sibling, the closer the family reference sample is to the missing person, the easier it will be to make a match. But yes, these profiles from volunteers, from loved ones, do go into this CODIS database, this sort of federally managed database, but solely for comparison against DNA profiles that are obtained from unidentified persons or unidentified remains. So it's not like if you volunteer a sample that your DNA profile will be compared against the offender databases. There are restrictions and you can always request your samples be removed from the database. Kelly explains in more detail the different DNA markers she uses in her lab and how they can be used to identify a missing person. There are limitations to the types of DNA markers that are commonly used in forensic investigations right now. The types of DNA markers that the FBI uses and your general crime lab uses actually looks at variation in DNA length and not in the actual sequence of the DNA. And so that's the big difference between what we do and what the standard traditional method of DNA testing is. We're looking at the DNA sequence information in a sample. Mm -hmm. The reason why that sometimes is technologically better path is when a sample, I mean, with unidentified remains, particularly when a sample is too degraded, the DNA markers that are used for searching against CODIS can't be observed when the samples are too degraded. These newer methods of looking at DNA sequences and not just the length, you can actually observe DNA fragments that are extremely degraded. And what I mean by degraded is simply short. When DNA degrades over time, it gets shorter and shorter and shorter. In a living cell, all of your DNA, which is called genome, the whole collection of DNA that tells you everything about who you are and how to build your body is all condensed within a cell. So there's one copy of the human genome in every single cell. But as soon as that cell wall breaks open and the DNA is is kind of exposed to the elements, instantly the DNA begins to get chopped up into tiny pieces. And the longer the DNA is not protected within the cell, 
the shorter and shorter the DNA pieces get. If they get too short, then these CODIS markers, they're called short tandem repeats in the scientific term. These STR markers, which are critical for CODIS to work, cannot be observed. So there's two ways that a cold case can become cold in my mind. One is that the sample's perfectly good quality, but there's no one in the database, no one in that CODIS database to make a match. Or the sample from the physical evidence is too degraded to even be eligible to go into the database for for matching. Both of those roadblocks can be helped with these new technologies using whole genome sequencing or sequencing Mm -hmm. the DNA, as well as some of the newer databases that can be used for genealogy, which is a whole separate topic. And part of what we do is when law enforcement comes to us and, and says, I have a case that's cold, they're not sure what can be done. And so part of what we do at Estrella is talk to the detectives who kind of have all of the knowledge of the case, of the event, of the circumstances surrounding finding the evidence or finding the remains. And then with the crime lab on the call who have described what they've tried doing, what kinds Mm -hmm. of DNA testing they've already done, what samples are available, what samples have been reinterred, do things need to be re-exhumed, things like that. What we can advise on is given the material that is still available, what's your best shot? What sample type, what part of the skeleton, what part of the of the evidence gives your best shot of getting enough DNA to either get an STR profile or get genome information for testing against these genealogy databases, which is the newer way of doing things. If you use a DNA extraction method, if you're using an older method of getting DNA out of the sample and you don't realize that the DNA is so short, you might actually purify away the the actual DNA sample. We actually have methods that just try to recover every single molecule. We have come a long way from just being able to identify a fingerprint in the 1970s to now sequencing whole genome and DNA. But where is this taking us? The history of DNA technology has been a really rapid kind of evolution in the 80s and 90s. We didn't know much about the human genome. We were kind of flying blind. Forensic scientists, the advancements in the technology have mostly been in sort of scale and speed and cost. We can do more samples, more DNA molecules at once, much faster at a fraction of the cost. You've probably heard that the very first human genome sequencing took over a billion dollars, and now we can sequence a human genome within hours for under $1,000. That'll probably be at sort of a $100 mark at some point. The two areas that DNA technology has developed is both in what DNA markers can I observe and what method can I use to observe them. So the technology that we have right now in observing the entire genome which is 3 billion different positions. I'm not sure how much more we can go from that. I think we actually are going to end up stepping back before we ever get to the point where we're sequencing entire human genomes as part of a forensic investigation. We're going to step way back. And how few of these markers scattered across the human genome can we use and still make successful applications? Mm -hmm. Because what we want to be really careful of is to not sequence 
people's genomes, parts of the genomes that contain sensitive information, health-related information, things like that. I'm certainly not advocating that every person, every every crime sample and every suspect and every arrestee and every loved one has their entire genome sequence. The technology is capable of getting the entire genome, entire DNA sequence of every person if we wanted to. The actual challenge will be not doing that and figuring out how do we still make successful identifications with fewer genetic markers. Looking back at Australia Forensics and the work that you've done with law enforcement, what kind of success have you had in identifying these long-term missing person cases? I know you've said majority of them are unidentified remains. What kind of success have you had with all of this? Our strong suit lately has been getting the DNA out of a single hair. And the oldest cold case that we've had success with is actually 75 years old. And we were able to get DNA out of a single hair to provide law enforcement with a a profile that can be used in these genetic genealogy databases. We can use basically a lot less sample and get a lot more data out of it than in previous years with these technologies. So I can take a bone sample, for example, that is the size of an ibuprofen tablet, a very small, 200 milligrams of bone powder, and get an entire genome profile that's suitable for these types of matches. Just recently, we did that. There's a a case from 1985 of where an individual had been found, a young woman, and just the STR, the CODIS profiles had not been successful in identifying a match. And we reviewed the material and said, well, please give us this particular bone, this particular tooth, and we'll see what we can do. And we just used a tiny bit of bone powder, able to sequence most of the genome. And within just a couple of of months from delivering that file, law enforcement was able to identify the family and then contact the the potential family and, and get a reference sample for confirming that the remains were indeed this young woman. We've been working a lot with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, who kind of can act as a liaison to connect us with law enforcement cases and law enforcement agencies who might benefit from this type of technology. I think We've been involved so far in well over 30 different cases that have been solved where our technology has assisted in the process. And I think we have more than more than that waiting to be solved. So where we have delivered a file to law enforcement and they're actively in mm-hmm. pursuit of making those matches and building out those those family trees that are necessary for the individual. You mentioned the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. They also do reconstruction. If they have a skull of an individual, Mm -hmm. they can reconstruct of what that person might have looked like. Is that something where with genome DNA information, you could recreate and identify if the person is white or Hispanic, black hair, brown hair, this kind of facial features? It's not completely different. There are groups and labs who try to glean that information from the genome. And all of those characteristics you're describing is called a phenotype, the sort of physical characteristics that the genes, they're displayed in the body. That's a little bit separate than the facial reconstructions. A lot of that is based on the actual skeletal material and the bone structure. The reason we don't do any sort of genetic phenotyping is because we know that humans are so variable and part of 
our beautiful melting pot is that people are also very admixed and traits like hair color and eye color are controlled by so many different genes that we believe that it's just a a very difficult thing to get right. And so we kind of steer clear of offering that kind of information. One piece of information we do provide is what's called the maternal lineage or the mitochondrial haplotype, which is a part of your DNA that is passed down from your mother to you that basically remains unchanged over the generations. So your mother and your grandmother and your grandmother's grandmother essentially have this DNA, this part of their DNA that has come down through the generations unchanged. And so that can sometimes help investigators in the right direction. It often helps just sort of exclude people. Say you, your human remains that you are dealing with as one of the founding lineages of the Americas, A, B, C, D, or X. Then you can say the mother of this missing person does not have A, B, C, D, or X. And therefore, this cannot be their child. So it can be useful in exclusion. We try really hard not to say, oh, this is a haplotype, a maternal lineage that derives from Africa. But we don't say, oh, that individual is Black. Because the admixture can could have lots of different things over the generations mm-hmm. occur to make someone not look like they have dark skin. So I don't want to lead someone in the wrong path. We have all seen the use of forensic labs in movies and TV shows, but how is it really used in real life? Yeah, it's true. Analysis or or tests that may take a few hours in one of these fictitious forensic labs would take maybe days or weeks to complete in real life. Even when dealing with remains, even the process of getting all of the DNA out of the cells from the bone or from from the hair, that alone just takes overnight. And so the process of the DNA extraction is hands-on, like an eight-hour process over two days. And then you've just done the very, very first step of this analysis. So for us to go from getting the sample in the lab, processing it, doing the DNA sequencing, which is the methodology we use, could take a week or a couple of months. There are some methods that you might hear about or read about. There's something called rapid DNA, which is sort of a fully automatable, hands-free process of getting DNA from the sample all the way to that CODIS profile in just a couple of hours. But it's very restricted in what kinds of samples work and who can have access. Crime scene samples cannot be run through this rapid DNA testing. So all of that stuff, that's the fastest that you can possibly do is a few hours and you're not allowed to do it on crime scene samples. So all of those television shows (laughs) are certainly not not using rapid DNA testing. Many people today are taking DNA tests at home through various online sites like 23andMe or Ancestry.com. How does that differ from your lab? The direct-to-consumer DNA tests that have come out have kind of been eye-opening in that they've identified what markers are helpful in finding relatives, distant relatives and close relatives. So they've actually done a lot of the homework already. They have some of those tests that you can take from 23andMe or Ancestry.com, they have upwards of a million different positions across the genome that have already been established to be informative in connecting individuals, being able to match individuals to a particular family line. So in some ways, the that homework has been has been done. Finding 
a relative is a very different question than matching two people one-to-one. And as the field progresses, it will, it will be interesting to know how we can use the genetic variation that is really unique just to an individual and use that as a powerful tool to match hopefully family reference samples in the case of missing individuals, family reference samples in these databases. So how can we, how can we do a little bit more than the CODIS markers can do, but without compromising people's genetic privacy? The infrastructure to do DNA matching is based on these parts of the of DNA that differ in length, these STR markers, the entire infrastructure is built around that. So to start using a new type of DNA marker would have to start from scratch. And the only reason it's working right now is because the consumers who've taken these DNA tests have put their DNA in a publicly available database for a different type of matching. But if DNA sequencing becomes something that law enforcement use, the entire system is going to have to evolve. And that is going to take a lot of time. There will be a lot of policies that will probably be in place. The technology of getting DNA sequences out of biological material has been established for the last 20 years. Technology can do it, but the policies and the, the laws right. have not kept up. We're all trying to catch up with, we can do this stuff, but what are the rates and implications? The CODIS markers are beautifully designed to protect one's genetic privacy. So there's a reason why the infrastructure is the way it is. And there's a reason why it hasn't changed because we first have to grapple with how do we use new DNA technology in ways that doesn't uh, violate genetic privacy. But we first have to agree on what genetic privacy is and who has the right to look through another person's genome for purposes of solving crimes. What is it that the public should be aware of when using public genealogy websites? Genetic genealogy is in the news a lot. Currently, consumers and private citizens have control over, over whether or not their DNA is used for these types of investigations. You know, you can click the opt-in or opt-out buttons so that, you know, if there's an unidentified remains being uploaded into one of these public databases, that if you're not comfortable, you as a private citizen who has your DNA up in these in these ancestry databases, do not want to be associated with that kind of investigation. You have the choice to turn that option off. I think that consumers who do these DNA tests don't realize how much power they do have over their own DNA mm-hmm. moment. It's very helpful. There are cases that cannot be solved without people who believe that contributing their DNA profiles to these types of investigations is a kind of a just and important contribution that they can have. The other takeaway when you go back on the conversation about that we had today, I don't want to disparage the way that things are done now. It's extremely useful. It just simply has some limitations. It's useful to think about how new technology can address and fill in the holes when those roadblocks are are hit. It'll be a really interesting next 10 years in this space because DNA technology has moved so fast. We're moving fast within technology overall and 
we're trying to catch up with everything. And that's the tough part. I really appreciate you coming on and spending the time with us in explaining how forensic technology is used in missing person cases and, and unidentified. Thanks for having me, Caroline. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Missing Persons Uncovered. And thank you, Kelly, for sharing with us the advancement of forensic technology in helping reunite missing persons with their loved ones. If you'd like to find out more about our work and any resources we mention in the show, you can go to missingpersonsuncovered.com. And if you have any questions you would like us to answer or thoughts on topics you would like us to discuss, please contact us also through our website. If you'd like specific information or need help, please reach out to your local police department or national charity. If you are enjoying this podcast and discussion, please help support us by buying us a coffee through missingpersonsuncovered.com. I'm Caroline Humer. And I'm Karen Shalev-Green. Thanks for listening. Join us next time when we will talk to Kevin Metcalf about how investigators search for missing persons are using open source intelligence tools to generate leads and finding missing persons.